0: to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Boxscore.
0: Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, hey, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. He'll be on later in the show. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, streaming live, wnur.org slash pop-up, 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, be one of our listeners who gets to have their say live on the air. Call us, 847 866 Nine six eight seven all right, Director Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Heide join me inside the huddle tonight. They've just returned to the u s after a year in Germany, where projects included the world premiere of their opera Mauerschau at the Bavarian State Opera. We talk about that production in the context of the larger German opera system. Then, twenty minutes from now it's a chalk talk double header. Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced its 2017-2018 season. You get our hot takes on the repertoire, the artists, and the reasons behind lyrics' decisions. Plus, at the end of the show, don't miss Oliver's tribute to tenor Nikolai Gedda, who died earlier this week. Hey, maybe I'll even start ranting about the insignificance of the Grammy Awards if we have time. It is a great show tonight. Really great show. Let me just say, this is a strange time for sports right now for me because... There is no football. It's just basketball, college, pro, and hockey. And my Detroit Red Wings are in grave danger right now. The Detroit Red Wings have the longest post-season appearance streak in any major league sport in America. 25 seasons consecutively, they have made it to the playoffs. That run is in big danger tonight uh, and, frankly, all the way through June until this Season finally comes to a close. They just they cannot do anything right right now, which is a very problematic thing. Time to go inside the huddle.
1: Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle.
0: Really excited about these guests tonight. Amy Stebbins is an opera director, librettist, and scholar. And actually, she was on this show back in March when... We review the production of Verdi's Ballo in Mascara at the Bavarian State Opera, which was directed by Klaus Gut. Amy Stebbins, so great to see you.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My pleasure. Hauke Berheide is a composer for opera as well as orchestra, chamber music, and lead. He's also a terrific cook, by the way. Hauke, how are you?
3: Thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. You.
0: Um, so uh, how did you guys meet? What's the story?
2: Oh gosh, what was it, 2011? I think in 2011, uh, Hauke and I were uh, invited as fellows for the Deutsche Bank Foundation's Academy Music Theater mm-hmm. Today, or Academy Music Theater Heute, which is um, sort of a fellowship program for a small group, let's say 10 or 15 conductors, composers, directors, uh, dramaturgs, set designers, young people, sort of early professional uh, people who are focusing on music theater. Mm -hmm.
3: And Amy was uh, the mean American director and I was the German romantic composer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Has anything changed really since uh, then? No. I don't think so. (laughs) So what what was your first collaboration that you guys worked on together?
2: It was actually this, was it not, Hauke?
3: I think so. Yeah, it was. It, this wasn't
2: what we planned on doing first. We actually had another production that we were shopping around for a long time, and then Mauer Schau just kind of came out of nowhere.
0: So, how did the the commission for Mauschau come about?
2: Uh, it came about like most productions in Germany through kind of a, a discussion over drinks with a dramaturg. Uh, and we were talking with a dramaturg from the Bavarian State Opera about the upcoming summer festival and what their themes were and their social questions, and we realized that some of the uh, ideas that they were having overlapped with a just a, a kernel of an idea that we had been discussing the week before. Is that about right, Hauke?
0: Mm-hmm. And what was what was that idea exactly?
2: That idea was. Uh, sort of the phenomenon of sitting in bed or sitting in front of your computer or listening to the radio, (laughs) as you may do, Mm -hmm. uh, and trying to figure out what is the truth about all of these facts. I I still use that word even today. Good
0: for you, Amy.
2: These facts (laughs) uh, about our political society.
3: And given the fact that we are at least listening to news in two different languages... Um, this facts um, started to differentiate um, even more than they usually do.
0: So uh, is this unusual, the way that this piece was commissioned? I mean, we certainly don't see a lot of this approach in America.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, how could you maybe have more experience right. with this thing I now?
0: mean,
3: in Germany, it's very usual to be in some kind of a contact with different theatres, opera houses, and to know people there, and to be in a conversation about what, might be interesting topics, questions, stories um, to be to be told on on stage or to be um, um, put into a piece. And um, well, they were just thinking about the next seasons, and our ideas somehow overlapped. And this is fantastic because there are people like this dramaturg, um, people in, in the theatres, which are kind of the brains of the theatres who do research on new pieces, who do research on old pieces, who try to know, to reach out what's going on um, in, in, in the artistic world and um, keep the others in contact. My impression is that this is a bit different from the system in the US as far as I can talk about that.
0: I mean, I totally agree with you. The, the dramaturg is so prevalent, I mean, is integral to any German opera house. That is a position in this country, which is virtually non-existent, right? Lyric Opera of Chicago has a dramaturg, Roger Pines, a great dramaturg, but I I think we can agree, I would imagine he'd agree too, that his role at Lyric is not necessarily like that of a dramaturg in a German opera house. I don't think a place like Chicago Opera Theater has a dramaturg right? But man, would they be able to benefit from one.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's not only having a dramaturg as you're saying about the lyric, but about having a sort of a a hive, a collective of, you know, three or more people who can really um, first of all, you know, ping pong off of each other with ideas uh, but also who have different strengths you can have a dramaturg who has a strength in bel canto opera or you could have a, a music uh, theorist and then you can have someone who's very up-to-date on contemporary directing styles and these people can send you know powwow and come up with a really diverse set of productions for a season
0: it's opera box score on wnur 89.3 fm george Cedarquist here talking to director Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheider. Let's turn specifically to Mawr then. Two sentences. What is the story, Amy? What's the best way to sum up the story of the piece?
2: The story of Mawr is the story of the Amazon queen, Pentazilea trying to make the right decision in the battle and war for love And the conflict is that she is confronted by a number of different conflicting narratives and has to figure out the right one uh, in order to prevent the death of either herself or Achilles, the man she loves.
0: Hauke, in terms of the music then, how did you begin to tackle that story Mm -hmm. through your composition?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, the first step is to invent a plot or a find a topic which has to do with music and if we talk about um, the mediality of war you also have to talk about war and you have to talk about um, um, violence and cruelty and as music is an art form which is physical it's maybe one of the few places where you can try to touch that field although it's still problematic because I luckily have never been in a war situation of course yeah so yeah so my 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 work um with the composition was to find a language for violence and to make that sensi- sensible to um, for people by ha- offering something else which is some kind of a, an overwhelming beauty which um has to create some contrast to that so this is kind of the two extremes
0: for the music and this um, opera. We've got a couple clips prepared here. What is one of them that we should take a listen to?
2: Um, I don't know how they're named.
0: Uh, Dritter sure. Traum, Die Königin, die Botschaft.
2: Traum? Is that, okay, excellent.
0: And what do we need to know before we take a listen sure, to this a, a clip? Sure, sh- just a
2: shout-out to our team beforehand. Uh, what you're about to hear is uh, performed by singers Adriana Bastidas Gamboa, Edwin Crossley-Mercer, Lila Subramaniam, Hannah Herfotner, Joshua Owen Mills, and Frederick Yost, And it's performed by the Bavarian State Orchestra, conducted by the illustrious Oksana Luniv.
4: This year, this year, this year.
0: Great recording. By the way, did, how did you do that in the studio or is that from a live?
2: Oh no, that's the final performance, right, Hauke? Yes. That was just done live in the yeah. in the room from the board.
3: Yeah, when they finally had enough time to look into
0: the score. <laughs> 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 never enough time, right,
3: Hauke? Right, right. Yeah, I don't know how this happened but. Yeah.
0: So, we've talked a little bit about some of the differences between the, the German system, the US system, it seems to revolve around this figure of the dramaturg, but, I mean, how possible is it really that a U.S. opera house would be able to hire a dramaturg or carve out that position with this sort of expectations like in Germany?
2: I can't see why that would be particularly difficult. I mean, I understand there are budgetary constraints in the U.S. that are less urgent in Germany, although there are you know provincial houses that are struggling, uh, but it 's simply a question of the expectations for what these institutions are supposed to do. I think that houses here would benefit immensely from having people working in the houses who have the time and the uh, and the task to inform themselves of what 's going on internationally and also in their own communities i mean here in Chicago, we have so many composers and so many people who are um, interested in contemporary music theater for example and if I I mean I imagine people at the lyric are terribly terribly busy and if they had people dedicated specifically to just searching the scene here I'm sure they would find a lot of very interesting things.
0: I mean it makes me think of Paul Cremo who's I don't even think his title at the Metropolitan Opera is dramaturg necessarily, but he basically does exactly what you described, which is go out into the community, into New York City, and try and just put out those feelers and try and find those people. You know, obviously, the Met can do it. They're working on a different budget than some other houses, but it feels like it really should be part of the expectation. You know, it should really be part of the package of not just the Met, but let's say Lyric, Houston, L.A. Does L.A. have a dramaturg? Do you know?
2: I don't know, but I do know that they do an excellent job of finding some of the best productions in the German-speaking world and bringing them out to the United States. That has, you know, been on my radar for a while.
0: We're going to get to that in the second segment. Real quick before we wrap it up, what is next for Mauerschau?
2: Oh, we can't say. You can't say. Excellent. No. That's always a good thing in this business. <laughs> I right? wish we could, but I'm afraid we can't. <laughs>
0: okay, great. Well, that is always, uh, that is always uh, a good sign. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Give us a call in the studio, 847 866 9687. Our website, operaboxcore.com. There you can read more about Amy and. Hauka, you can also check out links to the Lyric Opera of Chicago 2017 2018 season announcement. That is what we will be discussing next on the show. We have a lot of opinions. We definitely want you guys to stick around for that. Keep it right here 893 WNUR.
1: Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this.
5: Over 20,000 people in Chicagoland are affected by HIV and AIDS. Many live in poverty and need food. Open Hand Chicago's programs provide nutritious meals to over 1,000 people each week. Volunteers deliver hot meals to homebound clients or pack weekly supplies of groceries for clients who can prepare their own meals. Give the gift of time. Call Open Hand Chicago at 773-665-1000 today to volunteer or go to www.openhandchicago.org on the web. Pedestrians are funny people. They jump out at you when you least expect it. For safety tips drivers and pedestrians all need to know, visit AAOS.org. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons. More and more babies in America are being born dangerously early. So early their lives hang in the balance. Despite the best medical care, thousands don't get through the first month. Premature birth is growing at an alarming rate. It affects one in eight babies. The March of Dimes funds research to give all babies a fighting chance. Help the March of Dimes stop the crisis of premature birth. For information or to help, go to marchofdimes.com. The baby we save may be your own.
1: Chalk Talk on Opera Score.
0: George Cedarquist here on WNUR, hanging out with Amy Stebbins. Hi, George. That was a beautiful smile. <laughs>
6: Smiles go really well on radio. So. Yeah, right.
0: And Hauke Haida.
3: This is my smile.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Oliver Camacho. I'm here. I made it. Hmm. You're coming from work, baby? I
6: came from the Harris Theater. They were doing uh, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Mendelssohn on fire.
0: This quartet's on fire. <laughs> that sounds extremely yeah. exciting. String
6: quartets. Awesome. The Escher Quartet was a special guest. They're so cute. I want to date a string quartet. Is that possible? I think.
0: Well, well yeah, I think yeah. so. You know, yeah. there's whatever
6: floats your boat, man. Yeah. I would start with uh, Brooklyn Rider would be my first choice. But um, <laughs> then the Usher Quartet would probably be my second choice. So, <laughs> Lur- look up Bro- Brooklyn Rider, folks. They're a very good looking quartet there.
0: Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced its 2017-2018 season. There is a lot to get to. This is a double-header segment. We're going to take a full half hour to really work through this. Uh, I want to hear your gut reaction, each of you. Just when you looked at that list and you didn't overthink it too much, what was the first thing that came into your mind? Oliver Camacho, would you like to go first? What was that? gut reaction about this season
6: where is the 20th century opera where are the female conductors and
0: uh where uh is the baroque music great gut response Amy Stebbins, what was the gut reaction?
2: I, you just took all of them. Oh, really? I'm sorry. I have a lot of guts. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you Could got see. a very big gut. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the, um, I think the absence of women was very, very noticeable. Although I, I don't think that that's something that's really different at many other institutions, to be honest, uh, in the United States and elsewhere.
0: How Gaber Haida, what was your Instant first take response when you saw that list. Almost
3: nothing has changed for the last 50 years. <laughs> um, and there are about 57, female, uh, 57 people in the entire um, artistic um, teams. Six of them are female.
0: Yeah. Here's, here's my gut. This is a conservative season from a company that is being forced to tighten its financial belt and is cutting artistic corners. Where do we want to start on this discussion? Do we want to go chronologically through the season, or do we want to go... I'll call
6: out the operas. How about that? That's all
0: perfect. You can right. be the MC on this All one. right, Take it away.
6: The production that we all knew about already, because it was sort of announced uh, in advance of this announcement, uh, is the uh, joint project with the Joffrey Ballet, our local uh, you know, fine arts ballet company here in the city. They're doing Gluck's uh, French version of Orpheus and Eurydice. And uh, the singers are not that famous. Uh, Lawrence Snoofer is actually a local girl. Uh, she's a Chicago area girl. Uh, Andriana Kuchman, I've heard of her. I've never heard her sing, but I hear she's really good. And then the tenor Dmitry Korchak, as in the role of Orfe. Um, Harry Bickett is the biggest name in this cast, and Joffrey Ballet would also be the biggest name in this cast. I forget, the, the director is John <laughs> Neumeyer. We talked about this before, and they're sharing this production with, I forget, L.A. or San Francisco or some one of those places. And Hamburg. Uh, L.A. Yes. and yes.
2: Hamburg, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, Hamburg, oh. Yeah. I, do, I don't know John Neumeyer's work. Is he German? Hauke?
2: No, 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 no. He's a famous ballet uh, oh, he's a okay. choreographer. Oh,
3: yeah. nice. But he's, but he's chief choreographer in Hamburg. So he d- he choreographs the Hamburg Ballet? Yes.
6: They're awesome. Yes. Okay, I hear that I have never yeah. seen them, but uh, I hear that they're amazing. Yeah. So.
3: I'm very much looking forward to that production. I think this is going to be interesting. Yeah. Although someone else already did a choreography of RF. Yeah, there's
2: the famous Pina Bausch uh, version of There's a
3: Pina Bausch version? Oh,
2: yes, from the late 70s, I believe.
3: Of this
6: or for the Gluck? Yep. Cuz there's also the Mark Morris. Yes. Right. Yeah. Pina Bausch was sort yeah.
2: of the first to to do this. Okay.
6: Well, I said there's no Baroque music, and this Gluck sort of straddles the line between, you know, late Baroque and early mm-hmm. classical. So I guess this is our sort of Baroque piece, you know. And we have Harry Bickett, who is a, sort of a Baroque specialist, even though he's conducting Carmen right now here in Chicago, of all things. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is not a terribly original idea. I do think that the collaboration is. Exciting. It's great that it's got a European opera house involved. It's great that it's got a ballet company involved. There's a lot of pieces, though, which I think could have benefited from this team working on them. I don't know if it had to necessarily be Orfe. What's next, Oliver?
6: Then we continue with the Ring Cycle, which actually I like Rheingold a lot. So I'm looking forward to this next installation. This is the Valkyrie with um, Christine Gerke as Brunhilde. Um, Local favorite, Brendan Jovanovich singing uh, Sigmund. And of course, Eric Owens continues his essay of the role of Wotan. Uh, Andrew Davis conducting David David Poutney production.
0: Uh, Hauke or Amy, you guys probably did not see the first installment, the Rheingold.
2: No, we were in Munich Munich at the time. You
0: were still in Germany. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have higher hopes, I think, for the...
6: Oh, you didn't like it. I loved it. I had a great time. I didn't, yeah.
0: I didn't like it. Because and I'll and I'll tell you why, and Amy's gonna agree with me, I know, is that basically the the conceit was all the mechanics of the stage are exposed, so we see the Rhine Maidens on these sort of um tripods, I suppose. They're on lifts, yeah. They're- lifts. So like we see the action, so we know how they're moving through the water, for example. Th- that, to me, is not terribly magical. Maybe that's because I live and work in the theater, and so I see the mechanics but of the stage all the time. But there was some
6: kind of reconstruction era. I forget what they, were, what they were
0: calling it, but they were trying to invoke... Yeah, dude, that made no sense. Yeah. Made absolutely no sense at all. David Powney, he's a great director, runs Welsh national oh, you'll never for him, so... So I've got a... No, are you kidding me, man? After this? After oh, you... Oh, no. No, no. He went to my boarding school. Yeah. He, I'll be working. I'll be <laughs> working with That's double him. drink, folks. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Name-dropping and boarding school. Awesome.
0: (laughs) What's up after Valkyra?
6: Then we go to one of the biggest hits of all time, uh, Rigoletto, uh, with Matthew Polanzani, which is, I'm happy about that. Uh, Quinn Kelsey, who, uh, this is going to begin to start a trend here. Quinn Kelsey is uh, an alumna, alumni, alum, alum, aluminum. (laughs) She's made of aluminum. He's made of aluminum from the Ryan Opera Center. And then soprano Rosa Feola, who did an amazing job as Nanetta last year with the CSO. Um, I'm very much looking forward to hearing her sing Gilda. Um, but, uh, you know, a pretty standard show. One of my favorites, but, you know, pretty
0: standard.
2: Who's the director on this one?
0: The director on this is Robert Sinclair. So he's, he's remounting the production. It's originally from San Diego. Yeah, and it's from 1997. Is my microphone working? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, sorry.
3: And it's from 1997.
0: <laughs> now, how co- I want you, let's just take a little pause here. Burn. Talk us through some of the statistics that you and Amy compiled in preparation for this segment. You yeah. know I'm a huge guy about statistics. Take it away. Normally,
3: I don't do that, but I was just, I started to be confused, and then I became more and more confused because I tried to figure out who did some of the directing, um, especially at the Rigoletto. They have someone standing there, uh, written there, who, who seems to be a woman. Okay. And um, then I figured out that the same production is originally from San Francisco. And then I found a male director for the same production. Then I figured out that it's originally done by someone like uh, more than uh, almost 20 years ago. So it's
6: a remount of a remount of a remount. So. Yes. And then yeah. I
3: did more research upon the other productions. And I figured out that most of them are done this way. Yeah. So that almost everything which is being sold as new is yeah. actually not new, but it's just um, made up. Yeah, I I, I guess. Hmm. I
2: mean, the the fact of the matter is that these things are quite complicated. I mean, in in when we were working in Munich, we heard through the grapevine about productions that had been purchased from Europe that then had to be basically not staged uh, because the money wasn't there. And I. I would just want to say that this the information that we found was nothing that we've had confirmed. It, we were just simply trying to figure out who directed the pieces and it became incredibly, it was like falling through the, down the rabbit hole, trying to find out who was the actual artist behind these stagings. And our sense was that actually the set design is considered more the staging and that the director who is considered this person who moves bodies within this set design is is a smaller kind of figure and not the Con, con, sort of the conceiver of the broader statement or interpretation of the piece.
6: And have you seen a lot of American productions that are like this, that fall in this mold, now that you know how it's been put together?
2: Well, I th- I think I have. I've just never really sat down to, I suppose figure out exactly the the structures behind the creation of these productions. And in
6: your opinion, like what is the result of this technique or this method of of putting on a show?
2: Well, it seems to me that the productions that are being staged here don't see themselves as interpretations of works, but they see themselves as the works themselves, the finished works, like Bizet finished Carmen and now Mm. we will mount Carmen, which I think says a lot about the institution that's putting it on. Um, And and Haugam made the comment earlier today, which is something we talk about a lot, that the sort of originalist stance of American culture generally with texts, whether with its constitution or its religious texts or its operas or theater productions, this belief in sort of an Ur uh, form that you have to, access and realize, uh, but that it's already there and it's not something that demands interpretation. And I don't mean interpretation like people walking around naked and pretending to have uh fornication can i say that yeah Yeah. Yeah. wearing mickey mouse masks and stuff like that yeah Yeah. right right i'm not saying that but but it's that if you're going to do a production of don giovanni right now you have to understand you have to i mean i can't imagine doing that production without thinking about the kinds of power structures at play in that piece and how they are connected deeply to power structures that are at play currently not only in american politics but certainly in american politics
0: I I could not put it any better than Amy just did. Well, this why don't you put why. it more
6: simply? Because she's kind of uh, intellectual there, and we have some audiences out there that might not know what she <laughs> said. She said "ur." You saying she's too highfalutin for our crowd? I thought, she started, I thought crowd. she started talking about the you know some some uh, like W N U R or...
0: "ur." I'm not gonna I'm not gonna reduce her statement to its lowest. No, but I can, I, can th-
2: I I can state that more simply if we have time.
0: We do, please.
2: Okay, what I mean by that is that the uh, it, it seems that a lot of either producers or directors, I don't know uh, because I don't know these artists, but they uh, believe that if you are taking a a canonical text, let's say Don Giovanni, that the piece exists and that there is a right way to stage it and there is a right way for it to look and a right way for the characters to interact and a right world for them to exist in. Uh, And where I come from as an artist is that every time you put something on a stage, it is implicitly, it is in and of itself a process of interpretation. Even if you decide to put them in pantaloons, that's a choice that you're making to put them in pantaloons. And I think Hauke wants to say something.
3: Please, Opera is an art form as many others too. It takes place in a performance in a specific time and a specific place. And it has to reflect that. And if you're taking a piece in um, and, 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 um, a staging like puritani, which is originally staged in 1976, and put it on the <laughs> stage of Lyric Opera of Chicago as something new, I can't see how this could be the case. And at the end, I'm not, com- not really confused that there are problems by selling this to people.
0: When we talk about opera dying or that opera's dead, the easy answer is, that, is to blame the audience right? Mm -hmm. The audience is too old, the audience is dying. Clearly that's not the case, right? Because people that are very much alive are going. When we talk about opera being dead, it's that the ideas are dead, is that the productions are dead because they are fixed and and they come out of a box.
2: And that's a question of leadership. I mean, the fact of the matter is that an audience can't be informed of something that they don't have access to. And it is the job of artistic leadership to bring uh you know to to create that access and uh you can create that access by bringing international product productions in you can create that access by um by reaching to uh local local groups or local artists I mean there's a number of ways to do it that don't have to be expensive but you it's very very wrong to say that an audience is not sophisticated or that an audience is unable to deal with something because quite frankly uh you you know audiences should never be underestimated. I've never met an audience once that was dumber than the piece it was. Seeing. Exactly.
0: You're doing the audience a disservice when you're trying to simplify the piece rather than invest and engage in all of its complexities. Well, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Oliver, last thought here before we move on to the next show.
6: Well, I just wanted to say that like, I'm, I am maybe killing opera because <laughs> I'm very conservative in what I want to see on stage. I want to see the original story respected. I want to see the singers um, managed in a way that allows them to sing. And I want the music to, I want the direction to serve the music, not the director to create his own idea of what the story is and ignore what's in the score.
2: I don't think that those at all exclude being attentive to the relevance of a a historical work in its contemporary context. I think you can get all of those things in and still m- address the matters of, you know, greatest importance that are operating in the piece.
0: After Pearl Fishers, it is... We didn't talk about Pearl Fishers yet. We didn't talk about Pearl <laughs> No, Fishers? we were talking yeah. about Rigoletto. Oh, come on. Who wants to see Pearl Fishers? Nobody wants to see that. So the That's next insane. show in the season
6: uh, is uh, Bizet's Pearl Fishers, which we saw on our first date, George. Uh, that is, um, the production, I don't know if it's the same production. We saw the one, different production, the Met HD, whatever. Okay. Yep. Well, anyway, this has pretty much the same cast. Uh, this is Matthew Polanzani and Marius Kvitsch, my boyfriend, uh, with, uh, Andrea Silvestrelli as Nurabad. And who's the Layla, uh, Marina Rebecca. Oh, she's, she's awesome. So this is, uh, this is from the San Diego, uh, production. Uh, This is a show that is not super popular with audiences, but I think it's beginning to enjoy a revival, especially because of a singer like Matthew Polanzani who can really, really blow on this role. It's like a really hard, high, you know, lyric tenor, uh, French lyric tenor role that not many people do well, but he does beautifully. So I I would see
3: it to go hear him sing that in the house. And the audience had time to get used to it because it's from
0: 2004. (laughs) Turandot is after Pearl Fishers,
6: yeah. That's in December. It opens in December. Look, look
0: at the photos of this operaboxscore.com. You got the link to the lyric website and to the photos on this. Yet. I'm just. Oh, do you
6: have photos? Let's see.
0: The photos are uh, basically of this sort of faux Chinese setup. You know, dragons and pigtails, silk robes. I, Look, should anyone be going to see fake Chinese work like this? Well, it's set in China. It, the question is, should the story be told in that way? How,
6: what other way can it be
0: told? There's about 30 million different ways to do this show, man.
6: All right, why don't you give us one?
0: I'm not going to take that bait. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and come up with some half-assed. You're like this guy Stephen.
6: You're like this guy Stephen Miller who came on the Sunday morning talk shows yesterday who like says there's all this evidence of voter fraud, but he wouldn't cite one specific instance. I'm know? like
0: Stephen Colbert. You mean mm. without the glasses? Mm.
6: All right. So I'm looking at the production now. Um, yeah.
0: I mean, Amy how Hauka, back me up here, right? Like, really, really fake Chinese BS. Really.
2: I mean, again. It's difficult to talk about the productions. I feel like the conversation that we want to have is a much more general one, just about, you know, why these pieces and also why these productions. And, uh, I mean, with the complete sympathy, I think, from all of us about the constraints under which the Lyric Management is currently operating, how could the program look differently? And would that be a good thing? I mean, you know, how... Is there an audience for this? Are, what, what are they getting out of it?
0: Well, they're getting Ness and Dorma. Which is great. What would be other reasons then to expand that conversation, mm-hmm. like you say, to program this opera at this moment? And again, we're saying this moment, we know that this production was probably put into the repertoire mm-hmm. 18 months, two years right, ago. Right. Opera
2: is slower than the theater. Right, exactly. Right,
0: so right. what would be the reasons for that? How could What
6: did you find out? When does this production originate?
3: Which one? The postures.
6: No, we're talking about Turandot now.
2: Ah.
3: Turandot is as far as I see. It's from 2003. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that was after September 11th. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I
3: understand. No, I totally understand that people like the music, and of course, I love Nessun Dorma and I love Puccini, and at least his music. Um, and there are many, many reasons to play that, but. If you stage it, it is theater. And this means that you have to react on the world much more closely than if you just play a piece of music. That's the thing. And I mean, I I recently talked to an opera director in Germany who was leading a good opera house. And he says, well, I'm dreaming of founding an opera house only for unstaged performances to Put things which are so beautiful that they have to be played, but which are not really don't have a reason to be put on stage anymore, can be shown as what they are.
2: And otherwise, and you can watch the Otto Schenk DVD. Yeah,
3: right, right. I mean, we re- we really have to think about how to deal with an with a repertoire which is becoming older and older. Are we really going to stage? Powerful in two hundred years, right? But
2: this is again back to the the issue of the absence of the twentieth century. This is and, and opera house leadership. It's the responsibility of the you know current uh, opera leadership internationally to develop a twentieth century, late twentieth century canon that will you know carry on into into this century you know, you know, hopefully the next one, if there is a next century. Um, and this there seems to be a very very big gap uh you know around the nineteen twenties when yeah, it turned out
6: as the most modern work that they're producing.
2: Yeah, and I think there was a Vodsak a few years ago, is that correct? Yeah, was. You know, yeah. I think that's probably the most recent work that, that they've done. And that's still we're talking about a hundred years ago. You know, in the nineteen tens when people were going to the Met and seeing Wagner, it was what, thirty, forty years old. Mm-hmm. Thirty or forty years ago we're talking about the eighties. In
0: lyrics defense, the very last show of the season, which we haven't gotten to yet, and we will after the break, that is a twentieth-century piece. That's but it's
3: not being performed in the in the house. It's
0: a twenty-first-century yeah. piece,
3: Yeah. and I'm very very happy about that. That is oh, we're talking about all. different pieces. Oh, here.
0: Okay. okay. we uh, we let's tackle one more super fast before we get to the break. Let's go over to the Bellini. Uh, so this all is
6: over. this is I Puritani which is a showcase for the tenor and the soprano. And in this case, we get the return of Albina Shagimuratova, who just sang uh, Luchita Lamor earlier this season. And we get Larry Brownlee, uh, who is definitely one of the uh, bel canto tenors of the moment, uh, who also is uh, about to perform Yardbird here uh, in Chicago. And it's getting really great reviews. It's kind of making its way to Chicago from, I don't know where it started, but um, yeah, Lawrence Brownlee is, is sort of a big deal. Um, this production. How old is this production? Well, this is
3: the <laughs> one which is really from 1976. <laughs> this is really crazy. It was originally um, 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 uh, staged by um, by Sandro Sequi, and it's it's still owned by the Met. Okay. I mean, the, uh, I, f- I mean, I find it totally fair to show something like that. That's yeah. uh, that's something else. But you have to say this is um,
2: a historical th- staging.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. yeah, no, really, yeah, that's true. And that's fine. But that's they do fine. that in
2: Germany, too. They'll pull out like a Hot House, or they'll pull out an Otto Schenk, but it's very clear that it's something that's coming out of the history of the institution.
0: Zabra score on WNUR, 89.3 <laughs> FM. Bef- After the break. Uh, before the break, really quickly. I
6: just feel like they are starting to curate lyric audiences for Bel canto because we had Norma this year. We had Lucia this year. Puritan is not an easy sell, but I think because we've had so much of it, they say, okay, then maybe we're ready for this this less popular Bellini piece, you know,
0: more on the lyric season. Plus Oliver's tribute right after this
1: live from Chicago. You're listening to opera box score more right after this.
6: average age when kids start to use drugs is between 13 and 14. The good news is that kids who learn a lot about the risks of drugs from their parents are half as likely to use drugs. So you need to start talking. Not sure what to say? The Partnership for a Drug-Free America's Illinois affiliate, Prevention First, has free brochures, posters, and other materials for parents, teachers, and anyone who wants to keep our kids from using drugs. For help, go to prevention.org. A message from Prevention First and WNUR.
2: Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k.
0: What? Why? Just wait for the inheritance. We've definitely got a rich uncle somewhere. We're one call away from the winner's circle at the Derby, dinners with multiple forks, a vacation home in the country, using summer as a verb. You don't actually think that, do you? When it
1: comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Dinah Fisher.
0: Opera Box Score on WNUR eighty nine point three FM. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho. Hi, yeah. And Amy Stebbins. Hey. And Hauka Berhaida. Hi. Uh, that was Lavar Burton, by the way, on that PSA from Reading Rainbow. That took me back a little bit. We're talking through the Lyric Opera of Chicago 2017-2018 season. It's been pretty brutal in the second <laughs> segment, actually. This yeah. is this is why they pay us the big bucks.
6: We are never going to get hired lyric. Lyric Opera.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah that, that went away a long time ago. But um, Oliver, you're hosting this. We're like two-thirds yeah. the way we're, through the we're season. We're almost
6: there. Um, so what we didn't mention, we failed to mention, which is a theme, uh, is that Turandot will be performed by Amber Wagner, who is a major rising you know dramatic soprano but she does come from the ryan opera center and i feel like the theme for this year is like how do we get the most out of our singers and not have to pay them so much and maybe like all these ryan opera alums like take smaller fees because it's where they you know did their finishing
2: sorry i'm going to interject there and just say that amber wagner is a phenomenal she is no i mean she's 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 quite amazing and i think i think it's a wonderful thing to be using their young singers more i mean if if, i imagine and again i'm i am i i don't know but i imagine one of the most expensive parts of producing it the lyric is paying the singers mm-hmm. and uh they have phenomenal young people but in that's the- what i'm
6: saying though it's like mm. do they get a deal on amber wagner because she did her whatever her finishing her her apprenticeship here it's you know?
0: between her and her agent yeah. probably
6: i mean there's i mean like the whole season is like you know, uh, peppered with all of these Ryan Oppers. and I love most of them. I mean, I'm, I'm but a it, big fan. You know, it so. also
2: gives the institution a connection to the city, which I think is also a wonderful thing. That you know, if you're taking productions that are not being produced specifically for Chicago, then at least get the singers to whom the the audience has a local connection. The
6: audience knows these singers and cherish them, but are some of these singers uh, the type to attract audiences from around the world? Amber, Amber Wagner, yes, but um, maybe not all the other ones. But we're
2: know. talking about Chicago, not around the world.
6: But we want to be competing with uh, the other international companies. Yeah. But, but maybe
3: opera in, in the first place would take place in the city where it is and uh, the importance comes from that because it's first of all an opera house for Chicago. I mean, Chicago is not a small city. Mm-hmm. There are some people here and it's located just in the loop and there are many 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 right, rich young people all around it which could afford to go to the theater why not trying to get them into the house for it in the first place okay
6: all right then <laughs> so the next show is my favorite opera of all time so I'm not gonna hate on it uh, it's Mozart's Così fan tutte uh, which stars uh, Anna Maria Martinez who has been a kind of a workhorse for Lyric Opera uh, she'll be singing uh, Eugenio Onegin well she'll be singing uh, Tatiana Eugene Onegin later on this year And uh, she was in Don Giovanni the year before and uh, Rosolka. And, you know, she's got a major following here in Chicago. The rest of the cast, I don't know that well. Um, Antonio Poli, Joshua Hopkins. I've heard of him. I think he's, uh, he went to Yale. Um, That's how I might know him. And my computer's freezing up. There's a woman named Mariana something. I can't see her name because my computer's frozen. Uh, Mariana Crebassa. Oh, Alessandro Corbelli is going to be singing Don Alfonso, which is awesome. He's like old school. And the Despina. Something Salagova, I can't see her full name, uh, Elena Salagova, making her lyric opera debut, conducted by James Gaffigan. Isn't that like a, He's not a the cable guy or something like that? Or he's like some comedian? Uh, no. Jim Gaffigan? Okay. I you don't know what I'm talking no, about, I do you? No idea. Dude. Okay. You I think, I I think there is like some comedian named James Gaffigan or some uh, TV star. Anyway, so that's Cozy. And how old is this production, Hauka?
3: Cozy is... Cozy is... It's from 2004.
0: Okay. Kevin Newbury is directing the next two on the bill. Gunos Faust and the piece Fellow Travelers by Greg Spears and Greg Pierce. I've had Kevin on the show a couple weeks ago. I have nothing but good things to say about him. He, in my mind, is just... Uh, this production of Fellow Travelers cannot wait to okay, see Okay, let's it.
6: back it up. Fellow Travelers is not happening at the Lyric. Fellow Travelers is happening as part of the Lyric Unlimited... And it's going to be performed at the Athenaeum Theater, which is a theater that seats like 500 and people. That's a, and that's like that. a smart so, yeah. choice, yeah. And I don't even know, know how many, it doesn't how, need to be done. I don't know how many performances they're going to do, but they're, there's no way they're doing the full run like they would if it was in the house, you know?
0: No, no, but that's a smart decision to, to put it in the Athenaeum.
2: I think that brings up a really... Big challenge that the Lyric faces, however, which is the size of their opera house. I mean, uh, how many seats do they have in there? Does anyone know? I think it's one? like
0: 4,000 yeah, like 3,600 maybe.
2: I mean, that's huge. And to fill your house is suddenly, I'm getting a, a full house at the Bavarian State Opera, I think, it's half, you know, uh, much easier. So, I mean, putting, doing chamber works, doing, I mean, doing anything less than Mozart in that house is a, is a challenge, and I think, you know, one thing that they're definitely going to have to think about, especially if they want to do more late 20th and 21st century works, is how do they accommodate that within that, you know, ginormous, uh, ginormous space? Do they put productions on the stage and put the audience on the stage with them? How does that work acoustically? Or could they invest in a second stage? Probably not with the current economic situation that they're in. Um, I mean, I think George is right that it's a it would be a bad decision to put them in the big house. I mean, I also, does anyone know the orchestration? What size of a piece this is? Well,
0: I mean, knowing Gregory Spears' work, it's probably some sort of a chamber ensemble. Mm-hmm. Let's say no more than 25 players. That's a total guess. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that the 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 management of the lyric has a huge challenge with a space that big. Not easy.
6: So uh, Faust stars um, Christian Van Horn, We talked about, I think last week, uh, he's singing the role of uh, Mephistopheles, uh, and he is one of the Ryan Opera Center alums, and he is amazing, and I would go hear him sing anything. We also have Aaron Wall, another Ryan Center alum, singing the role of Marguerite, and then making his lyric debut, the French tenor, I think his name's French, uh, Benjamin Berenheim, doesn't sound very French to me. And uh, this is conducted by uh, Emmanuel Villom, with, as you said, the Kevin Newberry, as the stage director. And this is a co-production with Portland Opera. How old is this production, Hauke?
3: Well, I think this is going to be a new one, right? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean,
0: of Faust, yeah. yeah.
3: I hope so.
6: And then, yeah. and then the fellow travelers my computer died, uh, but I can't figure out how many performances they're doing. But they're doing it at this place called the, the Athenaeum, which is not downtown Chicago. It's in, like, the north side, uh, kind of, like, west of Wrigley Field. It's a very old theater. It's very charming, and mm-hmm. they do, like... Legit plays there, and like circus there, and like unusual cabaret things. It's a, a, a kind of a much more smaller neighborhoody space. So,
0: the last show of this season, I'm gonna take this one because I am so excited about this show. Are you First sincerely of all, excited? I'm I'm genuinely excited. Now, this is in the musical theater slot that Lyric has always had, and I've been a hater.
6: They haven't always had it. It's new.
0: Oh, it's been going on for like, what, three years though?
6: Okay, so I wouldn't say they've always had it. So.
0: Oh, that's that's true, but it's also not brand new. Okay. I have hated it. I haven't been on board. I haven't liked the choices. I haven't seen the shows. Jesus Christ Superstar, I think, is an inspired choice because the story is totally compelling. It is through composed, and I think it's going to blow the roof off the opera house. They've done live rock music there before right wasn't the the chicago voices gala was there uh, a couple weeks ago so they can do amplified sound no Mm -hmm. problem the production is from london from the regent's park outdoor theater so we'll see how they're able to kind of shift it and and either squeeze it or expand it i'm not sure which direction they would have to redesign it into to to fill that space but i think it's just going to be totally awesome Am I wrong Amy? Is, no, this, is this a ask, dreadful idea?
2: Oliver, am I hearing that you're not a fan of the musical theater tag-on at the end of the lyric season generally?
6: I don't say I wouldn't say I'm not a fan of it, but it's just it's just not for me and uh, I I get that they need to get new people in the opera house and it's a way of doing it. You know, I like the idea of people just stepping foot in there and seeing that it's not mm-hmm. as, you know, highfalutin as they think it might be, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh so I appreciate those uh outreach efforts. Uh have they always been successful? I've seen two of them. Uh I saw um Carousel and The King and I. And um yeah, I I I, I liked Carousel. So sure.
2: Yeah, I have to say i'm a, I'm a huge fan of this and it's never made me popular in Germany i mean, when I when I joined this fellowship program one of the first things that I said was that I love American musical theater and no one spoke to me for the first half year in the program <laughs> um, but I, I you know it is the most important American music theater form we it is what we have created and Jesus Christ superstar of course is coming is a different genre within musical theater uh, however works like the King and I and uh, uh, and um, Carousel come directly n- not only out of you know the American tradition but also the European operetta tradition mm. that we were lucky enough to inherit um, through a number we of. We did our best to support you by that. Yeah, thank you, Germany. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think it's really important to bring these historical opera works into con- into the context of the American musical theater tradition. I think that's a great thing.
0: That is the lyric opera of Chicago season for twenty seven twenty eighteen. Let us know what you're thinking. Leave us a message on Facebook. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Oliver, you had prepared a short little tribute yeah, here. We're going to well, do this right before we wrap up the show. Talk my, us through it.
6: My clip is two minutes long, so I'll just talk for like 45 seconds. Uh, Nikolai Guetta actually died uh, at, in January, but uh, his death was formally announced uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, one of the true, true great tenors that has like a long lineage uh, to like the great history of the Golden Age or a Golden Age uh, he started singing professionally when he was 26 years old. He made his debut. Uh, he was quickly scooped up by EMI, a uh, recording label. Um, the main producer there, Walter Legge, and his wife, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, really took a shine to him. And they introduced him to Herbert von Karajan, with whom he made too many recordings to mention, in operetta, uh, in French repertoire, in Russian repertoire. He's half Russian, half Swedish, or like a quarter Russian and a, and three-fourths Swedish. So he has amazing languages. His English is awesome. And he's just a stylist. He's one of those singers that can interpret many different styles of music, you know, Italian bel canto, uh, you know, the French lyric style. Uh, He did Bach, he did Mozart, and he did it all so intelligently with a beautiful, beautiful tone. Uh, When I was going to school, you know, we always talked about like, you know, Carlo Bergonzi and Franco Corelli and all these like really amazing Italian tenors. But The tenors that we wanted to emulate like because of his intelligence and because of his really clean technique was Nikolai Geta. We're going to listen to him sing a little bit of a Rachmaninoff song. Uh, This is uh, Nepoi Krasavitsa, accompanied by Alexis Weissenberg. This is from a 1967 recording. We're just going to hear like two minutes of it.
4: Good
1: call, bad call on Opera Box School.
0: Oh man, this hour goes so fast. It goes really, really fast. Good call, bad call. Let's kick it off. Well, let's let our guests go first. Amy, do you have a good call? I think she wants me to go go first. She wants you to go first? (laughs) Yes, she does. All right, age before beauty.
6: So um, Sandrine Piot, the French uh, soprano, is going to be doing a recital at University of Chicago this Friday. I highly recommend her. I can't go because I'm in rehearsal for Les Arts Florissant, the production that I'm putting on in Gray's Lake. If you would like to learn more about it, go to vox3.org. And you can also go to vox3.org slash support
3: and
0: help me out, please. Amy Stebbins, what do
3: you got? I do it. How Haida. I a very good friend and... Fantastic um, artistic partner, Oksana Lünev, who is one of the best conductors I've ever worked with, and she's only 37, I think, just um, became um, the first female um, general music director to an Austrian opera house in Graz. And we are looking forward um, uh, to her work there.
0: That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. At WNUR, the programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brock Stussy. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score, like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, or tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Hey, if you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes. It'll take you, like, 30 seconds. It's the cheapest and fastest way for you to help promote our show. The creative consultant for Upper Box Store is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist for Hauke Haida and Amy Stebbins asking you to continue the conversation about opera tomorrow night over that romantic candlelit dinner. We're back next Monday at 9 Central when I talk to composer Stuart Copeland about his opera The Invention of Morel*, which opens on Saturday at Chicago Opera Theater. Seriously, Stuart Copeland on Opera box score. Did I mention he was the drummer for The Police? Argo Radio is up next with DJ Steve. This is WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's Sam experiment <laughs>